This is surreal. For me, anyway. I don't know about for you, but... Um, yeah, first time here since early July 2016. Um, so, yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty surreal. Surreal to be here in a new building. A bit posher than we had before. <laughs> Slightly better, but you know, there we go. Uh, yeah, very nice facilities you've, you've got here. That is, that is really nice to be uh, blessed with this building. I'm sure you're delighted with it. Uh, surreal to see faces uh, that I know and have known for a long time and also lots of additions, so praise the Lord for that. Obviously for me, surreal to be here without Kim, uh, who was my co-laborer in the Gospel for 30 years. And uh, so that's, that's very strange to be back without her. Um, of course, some I've known here for about 40 years, Linda and Margaret, and then Pastor and Rona must be very close to 40 years. I'm not quite sure, around the 37 or 35, I'm thinking. In fact, so having left here, as some of you know, I went South Craven. That was so traumatic. Pastor and Rona moved here to escape. <laughs> and here I am preaching again. It's, yeah, hopefully they'll, they'll just put up with this one visit and not move house to escape again. But yeah, uh, it, is, it is good to be here. Let's, uh, let's turn to God's Word. We're going to um, be focusing on the whole section that was read for us, uh, Matthew um, 8, 23, through to 9, uh, verse 8. And uh, if this is working, are my slides on there? They should be. Oh, they were, oh, there we are. They take a little longer to come up. Than right, there was a bit of delayed response and then they're all there. Right, there we are. Uh, Power to Bring Peace is the uh, title for, for this evening. Uh, and it strikes me that if we were, uh, for instance, in, in Ukraine or in Syria today, uh, we would really know the value of peace. It's nothing, there's nothing like the absence of a thing to highlight how important that thing is. And for people who um, really wonder about their safety, the safety of their families, their homes, and uh, where food will be coming from, etc., in war-torn areas, then then peace is clearly uh, a very, very important thing. It's not just in the kind of headline-grabbing situations where we realise the importance of peace. If you are growing up or have grown up in a family where parents are constantly arguing, you know the importance uh, of, of peace. Or if you are working or have worked in a situation where a manager or a colleague is constantly finding fault with your work, then you know the importance uh, of peace. Or if you've recently been to the hospital and received a significant uh, diagnosis, you know the importance of peace. There are many reasons that highlight the importance uh, of peace. And peace is a, is a beautiful thing. You see it sometimes in the face, on the faces of those who are experiencing terrible things and yet there's this, this serenity, this peace. Uh, upon them. Uh, Kim and I noticed uh, 
that two days for us could, outwardly speaking, in terms of her symptoms of multiple sclerosis, look very similar to one another, but could for us, for our experience, be very, very different. And the thing that made the difference was whether we had peace. And it's the peace that the Apostle Paul speaks of, the peace of God uh, which surpasses all understanding, Philippians 4, 7. That will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And when you, when you have that, guarding your hearts and your minds, everything can be going wrong around you. And yet there's a, a deep, calm, peace, confidence in the Lord. That absolutely makes no sense. It surpasses all understanding. Understanding would say, I should be in utter turmoil, great distress, and yet, when we have the peace of God that surpasses understanding, that makes no sense, then uh, we are really kept uh, by, by that peace. And here in the passage before us, Jesus is presented as the Prince uh, of of peace. That name, of course, comes up in the prophecy of Isaiah, in Isaiah 9-6, one of those great prophecies that's wheeled out at Christmas and then goes away for the next 12 months, sadly. Uh, but, you know, for, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, I could just say, giver of peace. That would be true, wouldn't it? He gives peace. But how much more powerful to see him as the prince of peace. A prince is one with majesty and, and with power. He, he can authoritatively give that which he wants to give. Uh, and Jesus doesn't, you know, pathetically offer us peace and say, well, look, you know, if you, if you, uh, just come over here, or more um, demandingly, if you run a marathon, then you'll have peace. No, he, he, he can dispense it freely and powerfully as the Prince of Peace, giving peace into our uh, lives and hearts. And really, this this theme of the authority, the, the element of being the Prince of Peace, having power to bring peace, this element of power and authority has been Matthew's theme, it seems to me, since the end of the Sermon on the Mount. So you know that the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5, 6 and 7. And at the end of that, Matthew comments that the crowds were astonished at Jesus' teaching. Why? For he was teaching them as one who had authority. He had authority. And so Matthew then picks up the theme of authority. Why? Because... Authority then, as well as now, is so often abused. It's in the news all the time. The abuse of authority. Uh, and it was no different then. And, and so Matthew wants to show us the authority that Jesus has um, is, is wonderful authority, lovely, beautiful authority. And so through this section, Matthew has a, a little bit of a pattern that's repeated. He has he brings together three miracle events, beginning of chapter 8, then a bit of teaching on discipleship, then three more miracle events, a bit of teaching on discipleship, and then another three miracle events. We're in the middle of that cycle 
um, of, of Matthew's. He's already shown in the first cycle of miracle events how Jesus' authority was for the, the marginalised, rejected people of society. That's good to know, isn't it? Because usually the misuse of authority actually is, is against to the harm and hurt of the marginalised, the weak, those who cannot defend uh, themselves. Uh, and so he's shown to have authority that is for the marginalised, that, uh, that encourages faith, that acts with amazing uh, grace. But here, the, the element that, hang, that draws all this together is not only Jesus' authority, his power, but his power to bring peace. As he, as he calms a storm, verses 23 to 27. As people are fearing for their lives in that situation, he calms the storm. As he then meets two demon-possessed men who are, who are ruined by the power of the devil that is in their lives. So ruined that they, they live in tombs. Uh, no one can pass that way safely because they are so, so fierce, so violent. And then as he not only heals the paralyzed man, but firstly, forgive him. Pronounces this man's forgiveness. He has peace with God. So there's great peace here. So I want to just uh, go through three uh, quick questions to really unpack what we see of Jesus' power to bring peace uh, here. First of all, is this, what kind of man is this? What kind of man is this that we're dealing with? That's that's literally the question, or in the ESV verse 27, what sort of man is this? NIV is what kind of man is this? What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? You see, they got into a boat as a group of disciples with Jesus. There's 12 disciples with Jesus. Four of the 12 are experienced fishermen, not with a rod and line by the edge of a river, but out at sea with nets. Uh, and their sea was the Sea of Galilee, which is actually a, a huge lake that behaves pretty much like a, a sea. And the Sea of Galilee, because of its particular location, um, had a tendency to have terrible storms without hardly a moment's notice. That's because the wind could come howling uh, down the, the length of the Mediterranean Sea, hit the eastern edge of the Mediterranean Sea hit land, Israel, as then mountains, and the wind would go over that and then bang down into the Sea of Galilee, and a storm um, would, would come without a moment's notice. Now, four of the twelve were fishermen on this Sea of Galilee and had been for years. They would be well used to handling a boat in this situation. But they're scared for their lives. Now, what sort of man is this? What kind of man is this? Well, he's a man that's in this boat asleep. He's asleep. What do we know? He's therefore a man who's tired. A genuine human being who's been working hard, he's so exhausted that he can, he can sleep in a boat in a storm. Uh, I don't know whether you've ever felt like that. I certainly have. I used to be far more sleep deprived than I am now. Um, but, you know, put me in a car and I'm away. Um, that's when I'm driving. <laughs> Passengers worry. I, uh, I'm better now than I used to. But, uh, yeah, Jesus was, was dog-tired. He was so tired and exhausted. He's asleep. 
But what we see there is that he, he is therefore genuinely 100% human. He, he is a man. He's tired enough to sleep through a storm. But then at the same time, he's this same man who can, when called upon for help, stand up, speak to the winds and the waves, and they just stop. And that is incredible. I mean, it's great, isn't it, when kids are at that kind of age, when they don't understand weather whatsoever, and maybe the wind is really blowing and swirling, and they shout at the wind to stop it, because it has absolutely zero impact. We, we can't impact the weather. Uh, why? Um, we, we just can't do it. it the weather is, is bigger and stronger. And, and Jesus not only stops the wind, but the waves, and, and they operate um, in connection, but just because of... The, the, the wind of a storm stops, the, the sea will still be surging for quite a while afterwards, but not on this occasion, Jesus speaks, and the wind and the waves, they stop. It becomes a mill pond. Verse 26 says, there was a great calm. And they ask the question, what sort of man is this? They know he's a man. He sleeps in a boat, fast asleep, they have to wake him. What sort of man is this who by his word can stop the wind and the waves? Who has this kind of power? They don't answer their own question. What we see as we read on is, is that he's the same kind of man who can encounter two men who are demon-possessed. They, they're coming out, verse 22, they're coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. These men are absolutely tormented. Their lives are in ruins. They're clearly away from family and community. Um, if you ever, you know, go looking on right move, look for the next Desres, a nice place to live, the house to buy, you would not pick one in the tombs. You know, that this, this is not a nice place to live, but this is where they are. They're so tormented. Uh, and they're so fierce that no one could pass uh, that way, but Jesus can bring them into peace. He can bring peace to a sea, to a storm, and he can bring peace to demon-possessed men by casting the demons out. And it's interesting, very significant, that the demons give the answer to the question that the disciples did not answer. So in verse 29, behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? What have you to do with us, O Son of God? They know this is the Son of God. This is God, uh, the Son. He is the one who can stop a storm, stop the wind, stop the waves, cast out demons. He's the Son of God. He is both 100% man and 100% God. He is the God-man. The man, Christ, uh, Jesus. And then as we move on to the third miracle event, we see that he's also the same kind of man who some opponents unintentionally but correctly describe when he not only heals a man but forgives this paralysed man. What do I mean? Well, look at it. Verses 2 and 3 of chapter 9. Behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed, and when they saw their faith, 
He said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. What do they mean? He's blaspheming. We think often of of blasphemy as when people, you know, they they drop a glass of water, water all over the place, the glass is shattered, and they'll use God's name as an expletive um, out of frustration and annoyance that they've, they've done this. That's blasphemy often to us. But it's deeper than that. It is a misusing of the name of God. Uh, and actually, these scribes have got a lot right in what they're thinking. They are deducing that Jesus is committing blasphemy because they know correctly that ultimately only God can forgive sins. And so, next step, if someone claims to have the power to forgive sins, they are misusing the name of God. Because they don't have that right if they're just a human being. So they're, they're dead right at that level. Where they went wrong was the final stage. They assumed Jesus wasn't God. And so they assumed he was committing blasphemy. But that's where they were wrong. Because this is, as the demons have pointed out, this is the Son of God. This is God uh, the Son. And he has power over nature. He has power over Satan. He has power over sin. He has the power to forgive sins. He's got that power. He proved he had that power by showing there were not empty words. You, you see the, the debate uh, he has with them. Uh, verse 5, which is easier. Notice he doesn't say which is easier to do. He says which is easier to say. Your sins are forgiven or to say, rise and walk. See, if I say to Richard, if he's paralysed, rise and walk, that is a tough thing to say because you could test whether I had the power to do it. He would either get up or he wouldn't if it's paralyzed. So it's a hard thing to say because you could test that. But if I gave forgiveness, you can't test that. That's that's invisible. That's in the, the spiritual realm. So it's an easy thing to say. So Jesus, to show that although he's kind of said the easy thing, he has power to do that because he even has power to do the harder thing, and that is to heal the man. So he says to the man... Rise, pick up your bed, and go home, verse 6. And he rose, verse 7, and went home. So here he is, Jesus, man and God, power over nature, power over Satan, power over sin, power to bring peace in every realm of life. He is the Prince of Peace. And we come to him as such a one. Because when we have, we can also come to him with all of our needs. Because we've already referred to Philippians 4 verse 7, that peace of God which surpasses all understanding, guarding your hearts and minds. But before that, the previous verse said, do not be anxious about anything. How can we, how can we not be anxious? There's lots of troubles in our lives and in our world. Well, this is how we're not anxious, but in in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If we were to rewrite those verses with our modern mindset, we would like it to read, verse 6, exactly the same. Don't be anxious, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then we would rewrite verse 7 as saying, and God will do exactly what you asked him to do. But he doesn't. 
There is no reference there to actually what will happen to the situation. We bring it to God, we entrust it to him, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He is the Prince of Peace. He can give us peace with God through the forgiveness of our sins. He can give us peace with God which surpasses all understanding, no matter what the circumstances. Secondly, what kind of people uh, are we? We'll not spend as much time on these latter two questions, but what kind of people are we? I mean, when you look at the various people through this passage, where, where, where do we fit? Maybe we resonate with a few. I mean, when we go back to the beginning, uh, do, do you know who to turn to when you drown? That, that's, that was how, uh, that, that was clearly what uh, the disciples knew. You know, they, experienced fishermen, were at the end of their tether. They believed they were drowning in this terrible storm in the Sea uh, of Galilee, and they turned to Jesus. It's a great thing to know who to turn to when you're in big trouble. That's a great starting point. However, the next bit with the disciples isn't quite so good, because it's clear that the way they woke Jesus showed him that they were more afraid than they should have been because his response, verse 26, is why are you afraid of you of little faith? So they know who to turn to. The problem now, and this may well apply to you and to me, they should have known better. Based on experience. They've been alongside Jesus for some time. They'd seen what he could do. They'd seen his miracles. They'd heard his promises. And we don't, I don't think it's quite clear what it was about how they asked, but something about how they asked showed that they were not learning from experience. Now, how are you on that? You learn from experience. Some of us, as we get older, think we should have more peace have a more serene walk with the Lord because we've learned all the lessons and we haven't always done so. We need to be learning the lessons, we need to be learning from experience, the experience of our actual circumstances and how God works, but also the experience of, of, of time in the Word and of God speaking to us. And, and lessons we've learned once, we, sh- we should be then ready to kind of bring them into action. But sometimes we can find we, we're just back at square one. We've got the same fears as we had before. We shouldn't. So, what kind of people are we? Do you know who to turn to? Great. But are you learning from experience? That, that would be even better still. But then, are you tormented? These tormented, demon-possessed men, are you, are you, are you tormented? Do you, do you sense, and I'm not talking about demon possession at all, I'm talking just about the work of the enemy in the world and in our lives. You know, are, are you sensing torment, the powers of darkness at, at work in your life, in your family? You're feeling that torment? We need to turn to Jesus if we do. Or are you like these pig owners? You, you notice what happens with these pig owners and, and, and the whole community actually. The, the herdsmen, after, after the pigs have, have drowned in the sea, because the demons went out into the, the, the pigs and they drowned in the sea, 
The herdsmen fled, verse 33, and going into the city, they told everything. So the people in the city knew everything that happened. And Matthew, so that we really don't miss the point, says especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. So yes, they knew about the, the loss of income through the death of these pigs. That's, it's not unimportant, there are a lot of pigs. But especially they were told what had happened to these demon-possessed men. They were known in the area. Everybody knew not to go that way by the tombs because these tomb demons possessed They knew that they had been transformed by the power of Jesus. But when they get to Jesus, the people of the town and the herdsmen, all the city, verse 34, came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their own region. They didn't say, can you deal with these other situations as well, please? You're obviously got incredible, great and gracious power to be at work here. Can you deal with these as well, please? No. No, we, we, we don't like this. There's a cost here. Some people like that with Jesus. Yes, I'm really quite interested in this whole faith matter and following Jesus, but not if there's a cost. Not if there's a financial cost. Not if there might be a cost in my friendships or a cost at work or a cost in terms of sin that I need to put a stop to. We don't like the cost. We like the herdsmen and the people of the city. And then, even more briefly, finally, who else are we seeing here? Who else is in this passage? Well, we shouldn't miss the reality that Satan is very definitely to be seen here in this passage. Satan is presented, especially in the second miracle event, as a real, dangerous, powerful enemy. But also, as not all-powerful. He is distinctly presented as the one over whom Jesus has power. So we need to reckon with him. We need to treat him seriously. What do we see about him here? Well, firstly... Quite evidently, he ruins people's lives. Look at these two demon-possessed men, living in tombs, fierce, and everyone getting, keeping away from them because of that. Their, their lives are ruined. That's what, that's what Satan does. Let's make no mistakes. Halloween is a coming. There'll be the normal razzmatazz about that. Satan is not a joke. He ruins people's lives. But also, perhaps surprisingly to some of us, Satan knows a lot. Satan knows a lot. Notice verse 29, he knows who Jesus is better than the disciples do. What have you to do with us, O Son of God? They know the truth. That may be shocking. You remember James 2 and verse 19, where James says to his readers, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. They know the truth, and they shudder at it, they, they inwardly feel. But they do nothing about it, they don't respond to it, they don't repent. There's a real danger of that with us if we're not careful. But, but they don't just know that Jesus is the Son of God. Notice that they know there is an appointed time of judgment coming for them, verse 29. Have you come here to torment us before the time? They know their doom is writ. And also, 
It seems before Jesus has said anything about what he's going to do, they, they know, verse 31, the demons begged him, saying, if you cast us out, <laughs> they can see what's going to happen. The writing's on the wall. Jesus has been, is, is confronting, confronting Satan in people. They know what he's going to do. So they say, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. Why do they want that? To read further destruction and chaos. More torment. So that as soon as they enter the pigs, the whole herd rush down the steep bank into the sea and drown in the waters. That gives us another glimpse of what Satan and the demons are like. Let's not treat Satan lightly. However, let's not get scared of him either. Because we have a saviour who is altogether more powerful than Satan is, who at a word can cast the demons out, who can deal with Satan. So we don't want to end with Satan, we want to end with Jesus. We want to end with the, the Prince of Peace, the one who has power to bring peace. No matter how much turmoil we may feel and experience in our lives, no matter how much the storm may be raging around us or within us, Jesus is the one who can bring peace which surpasses all understanding.